greatly to be praised. To me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, but that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you progress and joy and faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. <clears throat> Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but in your salvation, and this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you are living 
the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray together. Glorious, gracious, wondrous God, your goodness gives us a reason for our life. Go beyond that and enjoy our after journey. But we so often take your mercy as our view, forgetting the depths of what you have inflicted, and presenting the very grace that saves us and we would extend it to our enemies. We are more concerned for our own comfort than we are confronted to the cross. Forgive us, O Lord, that we may learn to love your mercy and learn to love like you. Brothers and sisters, believe and have hope. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, in no way intimidated by your opponents. For he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but for suffering for him as well. Through him you are forgiven, you are welcomed, you are loved. Let us rejoice together and give praise to the Lord. Let us extol our God and our King. O oh God, God, you may provide a hand, even the satisfying throne, receive what they need for their lives. Teach us your ways of justice and lead us to practice your generosity, so that we may live a life worthy of the gospel, made known through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Good morning, church. Good morning, everyone. As we open up in worship this morning, I want to start off reading John 3.16, which many of you may know, but I'll read it direct, so don't mess up the words, because I'm going to read 17 as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the song that we're going to sing comes from that passage. Um, and I just want to bring to our mind a couple of things before we sing it, of remembering that Jesus is God's only begotten Son, but remembering that also for those who are in Christ, we are also co-heirs and children of God.
thank you for allowing us to enjoy some of you today and here at the parade. Keep your hand in protection on this church as tithes given so <coughs> blessings flow in and the church will flow down. In your name.
go with me, if you will, to Matthew, book of Matthew, chapter 13. We've been in a series through the book of Matthew for several weeks now, talking mostly about the kingdom of God and what it's like, as well as the king of that kingdom and what he's like. Two weeks ago, with the parable of the sower, we saw a God who is magnanimous. He gives truth out to everyone without finding fault, even those he knows probably won't receive it. He doesn't care. He loves the whole world, as we read this morning, not just part of it. For everyone who receives his word and allows it to grow in them, they're nourished by it, them and everyone around them. Last week, with the parable of the wheat and the weeds, we remembered that the enemy is living and active in the world, but also our God is living and active in the world, too. The remarkable part of that parable is not that God, in the end, uproots the weeds. Even though the Lord is abounding in steadfast love and mercy, he will by no means pardon injustice. The remarkable part of the parable is that he waits. The wrath of God waits, filled with hope that we might accept his gospel, accept the work of the Spirit, and allow him to change us in every way we most desperately need to be changed. Wrath is God's strange work in the world. His natural work is redemption and grace. Year after year, he makes his reign to fall and his sun to shine on the just and the unjust, hoping beyond hope to draw us into his kingdom. This week, we're going to look at just three short verses. Still, though, I would uh, ask you to stand, if you will. We're going to read it together. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. writes this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and in his joy he goes and sells it all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me briefly. Father God, I pray as I always do, Lord, just that no matter what comes out of my mouth, Lord, that what you administer to people's hearts and minds this morning would be your truth and your word. God, because we know your truth will set us free, and we desperately long to be free. We pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. This sermon was written in the ICU sitting next to my two-month-old daughter while she was on life support. In rooms like that, you have God, hope, his kingdom, and not much else to trust or go on. But strange thing, when the kingdom of God is all you have left, you realize more and more that it was the only thing you really needed in the first place. In rooms like that, you also realize the incredible importance of small things in our lives. I want you to notice the perspective shift between this parable and the ones that we, these two parables, and the ones that we have been talking about. We were talking about the way God gives out his word to us. And now we're talking about the other direction, how we as humans seek out God, the ways in which we seek the kingdom. After two parables featuring the magnanimity, or if you know the word, joviality of God in, in his constant giving out of his words and wisdom, we find two parables about God's kingdom being hidden and small. 
but incredibly worthwhile and incredibly important. These two things don't usually go together in our world, but in God's kingdom, that's the whole kingdom. That's what it's like. Jesus says, small, hidden away, and of inestimable worth. There's more than one paradox in this with what we've learned about the kingdom of God already, even in what we read in our readings today. How can the kingdom of God be both large, great, enormous, and small at the same time? How can something that's hidden away be so generously given out? Or how can something that's calling out in the markets or on the street corners still be hidden? And how can something given so commonly and so freely be still of inestimable value? It seems impossible at first, but the more I thought about it throughout this week, the more I find most important things in life are very small and usually overlooked, even if they're everywhere. If you don't see that, you may be looking more at our world than at the kingdom of God. In our world, to be important, you have to be quite large indeed, and you certainly can't be hidden. The, uh, the word importance, it comes from Latin, so from Rome, mean importare. It means both to have a great weight and to cause many consequences. Heavy, because wealth in Rome was measured with scales. The more weight you had, the more value, more money. Consequence, because important things by the world's standards, they have an effect. They go viral. Even in our language, when we expect something to be important, we simply say, this is going to be big. Talented people are told, you've got to get yourself out there. You've got to catch your break. We platform people. We make sure everyone knows their name. Even preachers aren't supposed to stay hidden. They're supposed to put their stuff on platforms and, and become known. It's, it's not enough now to grow your church either. You have to also grow your audience. I know one Christian publisher who doesn't even consider publishing Bible study materials from a person until they have a certain number of followers on social media. I think that's spiritually unhealthy. And I know I talk about, a lot about modern spiritual diseases. I'm always trying to read the culture and and try to bring the past into our modern age because I think it's important. We need something to set against our own era to make sure we aren't making, we aren't buying into the spirit of our times. But this particular spiritual sickness, this is not modern. <laughs> this is ancient. Think of the monuments of the ancient world. Most of them were built as monuments to kings to show their importance. The larger they were, the more important the king. We do this in our day-to-day -day lives, too. The houses we live in, the cars we drive, bigger is meant to indicate importance, consequence. Big houses, big bank accounts, big monuments, big decisions. And here in our text today, we find that the kingdom of God is anything but. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a treasure that's covered in dirt that no one knows about. But then when someone does stumble across it, it means everything to him. The kingdom of God is like a tiny pearl, and a man who knew what it was worth went looking for it. But when at long last he found it, he realized it was more valuable than he had even dreamed. And he knew everything else he had in the world wasn't worth nearly as much as this one tiny thing. 
I said the idea of bigger is important was ancient. That's true. Specifically, it's ancient and pagan. Not in the sense of uh, Christian moms calling their children's pagan when they misbehave, um, but in the sense of Roman and Greek pagan religion. Uh, we usually call it mythology and dismiss it, but in all of us, our mythology shapes our worldview and creates our language. Um, I would argue a new kind of pagan worldview is actually fairly dominant in our American culture today. Even in Christian culture, shaping our language and lives, we just don't call it paganism. We call it celebrity. Though we still call the highest celebrities either gods or icons, we preserve that language. In some ways, I've begun to worry that Christian culture in our time and place has been oftentimes more shaped by paganism than by Christian teaching. I'm going to start by describing pagan religion and see if you begin to see any of the parallels that I see. Many scholars talk about the gods of pagan myths as being humans writ large, meaning they do all the same thing humans do or want to do, just on a grander scale. Every person wants to be strong and win every battle. But Zeus is the strongest of us all. Every person wants to be clever, to be a step ahead, but Athena is the cleverest of us all. The gods all know each other, too, and they have luxurious lives in places high and far away from the rest of us humans. But we talk about them and emulate them. We sing songs about them, of their deeds. We write plays about them, and they're known to everyone merely by their first names. Beyond that, the gods dictate our fortunes. Their movements, their decisions, they bring us either fortune or loss. And if you do things to honor them, it's more likely their fortune will become your fortune. Their tide will raise your ship if you're on their team. The greatest of all the humans, the strongest, the best, the cleverest, occasionally they will enter the pantheon too, like Hercules, giving humanity something to strive for. Emulate the gods, be like them, and if you are good enough, if you try hard enough, maybe one day you can even be among them. That's what paganism believes. So going back to where we started, talking about importance, we always assume important things will be writ large. The most important teachings should be popular. The most important practices should be common, but hopefully you can see that idea is more pagan than Christian. The road is narrow and difficult that leads to the kingdom of God. Christianity teaches over and over again the most important things are going to be small and overlooked and even despised. I think of Christ himself, God incarnate, whose name is mentioned in a single Roman history. It's not even a history, it's more of a letter. And his name is misspelled. Our God was so small and so hidden on earth, he doesn't even get a mention. In all of the Roman magazines and newspapers and all their movies and pop songs, small enough that he can be crucified without a single Roman soldier having to die. Far from importare, Pilate thinks of him as barely worth his time. And the reason I've spent half of my sermon trying to convince you that important things are small is I don't want you to miss it. I love you, and I don't want you to get so wrapped up in the world that you miss the small, hidden importance of the kingdom of God. Again, I wrote this sermon at my daughter's bedside in the picky, which helped me understand this further. I'm sitting next to this baby, barely 12 pounds, without any followers on all the socials, without anyone in her church, without a bank account, no house in her name, no job. <coughs> she has not, as of yet, done anything that I could be proud of. 
and yet she is worth whatever I need to sell or spend to save her life. The kingdom of God is more like that than anything else. I'm telling you because I don't want you to miss it. I think most of us can probably relate to the experience of philosophers would call it existential, existential angst. Philosophers are good at making up words to describe things that we all already know. Um, but perhaps more helpfully, John Mayer would just say, something's missing. Something's missing. I'm about paranoid, or I'm pretty paranoid about leaving my house these days to go to work since we moved more towards uptown. We used to live about five minutes from my office. <laughs> I wasn't so worried about it, but now we live about 20, which is fine, except for the one time that I left my keys at home and I couldn't get into the building that day, or that other time that I left my computer at home and I had nothing to do my work on. A 20-minute drive, when you drive there and back and there again, becomes an hour. Every time I forget something vital, I lose an hour of my day. So I've started packing my bag at night and leaving it by the door, but still, Sometimes I end up walking out of the door and I have this feeling like I've forgotten something. Do you ever get that feeling? You know what I'm talking about? Existential angst in terms of philosophers is kind of like that feeling, but instead of driving to work, you're living the years of your life. In both cases, the drive goes by faster than you would think. You kind of go on autopilot sometimes, you look out the window and wonder to yourself, how is it that I've come this far already? But in your lifetime, it's harder to go back if you forget something. And turning around and retracing what you've already done is both more difficult and more costly. You don't lose hours, you lose years. Sometimes you get all the way to the end of your life or to the end of an era before you realize something very important has been missing. When you come down to it, the treasure in the field, the pearl of great, uh, of great price, they are Christ himself. He is the goal and the aim of Christianity. Jesus is. Not some secret knowledge, not some lifestyle or practice that you'll find on a blog. If you are here today feeling like you have everything you need and still somehow something is missing, having been in exactly your place, I will tell you that it's him. It's Jesus. He is the meaning we are hoping to find in life. He is the gentle and loving parent who will finally give you everything that you need as a child. He is the family you are hoping to build. He is the home you purchased at great price. It's Jesus. He loved you enough to die for you, and in his resurrection, we have a bounding hope of life everlasting. He is the treasure hidden in the field. He is the pearl you have been looking for your whole life, whether you meant to or not. And he is worth everything else you have. Lay it down and follow him on his way. For those of us who are in Christ, Christ is calling us in these few verses to consider what it is that we value day to day. What do you hold to be important, weighty, worthwhile? Where do you place your resources? Where do you go to find things to believe, tools to shape your life? Because the more we depend upon him for these things, the more our lives will be filled with his life. The more we find joy in the things that he enjoys, the more our lives will be filled with his joy. The more dependent we are upon Christ himself, the more satisfied we will be. In other words, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else you need will be added to you. But little things are so easy to overlook. I have one friend, a believer, who focused all of her early attention on her career for a decade or so. 
That was the thing of supreme importance in her life. She always intended to use that career to glorify God, and she does every day, legitimately. And by all of our usual standards, she's actually quite important. She told me recently <clears throat> she'd always look down on other women who chose to stay home and start a family instead of pursuing vocation. But what God has been teaching her is family may be smaller than work, legitimately. But family can be more important than work, even good godly work. Last year, she went part-time just to focus on being a mom and spend more time with her kids. And I can see in her face when she talks about it, with all the awkwardness of going part-time to focus on her family as a woman in our culture, with all the people whispering about burnout and not being able to make it in a high-powered career, her life now is more filled with joy and meaning in Christ than before. Their family is healthier. The kids feel loved and valued. It's like she was out looking for a pearl of great value, and it cost a lot, a lot of importare, a lot of money, but it was worth it. I have another friend who's single and in his late 40s, and his singleness is very much a gift that he's been able to give to his church and his community. His church is very much so a family, his family, and they spend a lot of their time caring for other people that the world would call unimportant. Single moms in New Orleans, in the exoburbs here, and their kids. He helped the church open up a childcare center that's free for working families. He found a director and did all of the work to get the building ready. He helps run an after school program too for the moms who have jobs that go longer than the school day. He's not wealthy. He lives in the exoburbs too, but he's found something there that to him is actually worth his life. It's actually worth his days. Like a person who found a treasure buried in a field that everyone else assumed was worthless land, too hard to plow. One last story of a friend who again had a very successful career, but his dad got sick and he was dying. So he moved back home and took care of him. He traded boardrooms and interviews and growth for acreage family and sitting by a bedside. We usually don't hear about stories like this in our world. They aren't important. And if you were to make a song or a movie about it, at best, it would be called artistic. But for the most part, it would just be largely ignored. But we should be OK with that. The point is not to take the small thing and make it as large as we can in our culture, as well known as we can. That would be to take Christianity and insert it into paganism, into a pagan structure. We don't need to take the ailing fathers and single moms and housewives of the world and make them famous. What we need to do is weigh fame next to family and decide that fame holds less meaning. We need to take wealth next to wisdom and decide which one is weightier. We need to look at a healthy child next to a stone monument and realize that only one of those things is everlasting. Paganism would tell you importance is being on your way to godlike status. Christianity says to not let one hand know the good works that the other hand is doing. Importance is found in the eye of your creator, who has loved you from birth, just as he loves my baby girl and each, every, each and every one of us, not because we have done anything great or have any skills, but because we are children of God. As Tim Keller writes, God does not love us because we are lovely. He loves us to make us lovely. The 
kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a treasure covered in dirt that no one knew about. But then when someone did stumble across it, it meant everything to him. The kingdom of God is like a little tiny pearl. And a man who knew something of what it was worth went out looking for it. When at long last he found it, it was worth, it was more valuable than he had even dreamed. And he knew that everything else he had had in the world up until that point wasn't worth nearly as much as this one tiny thing. My invitation this morning is an invitation into the joy of the kingdom. Which is to say it's an invitation into the joy of the creator and his creation and his people. May we value what God values. May we place weight where God places weight. May we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and regard everything else we have as nothing compared to him whom we have found. To him who fills our lives with eternal things. May we know to our bones that he is the only one who is good, the only one who is worthy of honor, the only one whose fame the nations ought to heed, the only one who actually is worthy of power instead of merely holding it. And his name is Jesus. What a wonderful name it is. Pray with me. Father God, this is a lesson that we need to learn in our day-to-day. God, in our moment-to-moment. God, what to value, what to prioritize, what is actually important, what actions are wise, God, and which ones are foolish. God, which ones go to serve the spirit of this age? God, which ones go to serve your Holy Spirit? God, which ones we are being called to in our faith to live out day to day, God, and which ones our culture are teaching us from our ancient past, God, a spiritual sickness that rises up from age to age, that rules over us, God, and that we struggle to be free of, Lord, but you are more, we are more than conquerors in you. God, you've defeated every enemy and every lie. God, may we find in you importance. God, may we find meaning in you. May we find rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. So we know you hear us. Amen. I would encourage you to respond in some way. I thoroughly believe that every time we read from the word of God, every time we sing and respond to the word of God, there should be some sort of response in us, whether it's to sit and pray, whether we stand and sing, I'll be in the back if you want to pray with me, but I would encourage you to respond.
you will, please join me in singing the doxology. We stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye and the and peace to love and serve the Lord. And peace be with you. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks.